Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and welcome to this week's installments of Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Timbele. I am pleased to share this space and time with you as you push the governance and ethical conduct agenda a little bit further. I'm sure everyone knows how good we are in producing, you know, good public documents in, in a South African context. And yet our leadership remains shallow and lacking in quality standards. I mean, we've seen how this picture has been worsened every single time you read newspapers, listen to radio, and so on and so forth, that we are quite, we are quite uh, shallow in so many ways. Our ethical standards are questionable. Our leadership is questionable. We, we don't get a sense that our leaders are representing the ethos of what Nelson Mandela stood for. Uh, but anyway, but be that as it may, we need to get these kinds of show up and running so that we're able to amplify those voices. It is imperative that you and I, from time to time, raise our hands, raise our voices, go to the streets, support men and women that wants to shape this country for the better. Anyway, before getting to the gist of our conversation, it is customary for me to pay gratitude to members of the team who are helping to navigate the show. Bosimasin, I thank you very much. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you miss any of our conversation, not to worry. Simply visit our website, which is www.highfm.com, and look for Beyond Governance link, and you'll find all the podcasts. Talking of podcasts, we had an interesting conversation last week with Dr. Sifiso Palala, who is the CEO at Plus94 Research. Dr. Falala gave us a very interesting insight on trials and tribulations he has experienced over the past 25 years. Plus 94 research this year is celebrating 25 year anniversary with serious milestone as a business. I must be honest, the genesis of Plus 94 research left me inspired. I certainly hope for those that were able to listen can attest to the positive nature of sound quality leadership that is, which we've seen displayed by market research CEO. At some point, you wish like you could plug him into some of the government departments, some of the state-owned entities. Surely they will learn a thing or two. But I, I implore you to go to that website and retrieve the podcast, share your views with us um, on what your observation are. Our SM line is 34519. And of course, your Twitter handle is, um, my Twitter handle is at Dr. Mele. And I will appreciate your inputs uh, through those handles. Uh, in today's conversation, I, I'm joined by Dr. Gregory Stotch, who is a qualified Orthomologist, um, he studied medicine and uh, and orthopedology at the University of Bedfordshire. He will give us insight on the intricacies of running an establishment as a qualified orthomologist. 
Uh, and again, I, where I implore you to give us your thoughts on this very interesting field of medicine, which I'm sure a lot of people are keen to know. But before we venture into my conversation with Dr. Stock here, I just want to weigh in on one or two controversial issues that we've seen in the public space over the past few weeks or so. The first one being the G4S debacle, which sent shockwaves through the, throughout the world. For those who don't know, uh, G4S, um, it is a multinational security company that is based in London and it operates uh, private security across the world. It is one of those companies that is listed in the London Stock Exchange and Copenhagen. Uh, it is active in about 100 countries, the last time I checked, and it employed close to about 600,000 employees. And in the South African context, there's about 10,000 uh, employees that are employed by this particular firm, security firm. You know, following the escape of infamous Tabapesta, the Department of Correctional Services uh, correctly so had to terminate the contract. Uh, with a G4S for managing or mismanaging among our own correctional services. And the extent to which or the size of this issue involves so many uh, players, for an example, people who stand to lose their investment from this particular issue, the Canadian Pension Fund and the U.S.-based holding company Allied, Allied Universal. And this is some of the things that few rotten apples bring Probably one of the most, before this incident, well-managed correctional services. We, we don't know much other than just recent incidences. A lot of investors have lost their money and due to the greed of few individuals. And you can imagine if you are working for this particular establishment as the chief risk officer, what it means for you. If you're working for now, G4S having lost the kind of contract, which it was quite a lucrative contract in managing, you know, the prison, the HR department. If you're an HR manager there, dealing, you you are now be dealing with host of HR related queries, which would be a nightmare. I wouldn't want to be a risk officer there. I wouldn't want to be a commissioner there. I wouldn't want to be any senior official having to deal with the massive cleanup which resulting in the collapse of the control environment, poor leadership, and clearly pervasive decaying of morals and ethics, uh, which has really shocked the world yet again. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that uh, in. And, and it should be a lesson for most of companies that we need to vet people, we need to constantly review our HR policies, constantly review our processes, constantly be on alert for the acts of few individuals are likely to bring what ordinarily would have been a sustainable business for some people to a near collapse. One of the issues that I went away in, which I found baffling, we've heard that the Minister of Police um, was calling to question at the Standing Committee of the Public Account, SCOPA, about the failure or perceived failure of SAPS in managing pervasive corruption at ESCOM. One issue that left my jaw pretty much on the floor was how ESCOM spent two billion rands on by paying almost 6,000 securities. I would be embarrassed. And the question the, uh, the SCOPA members were asking him, is there political will to address ESCOM 
corruption, maladministration, or syndicates that, that have brought this ailing entity to its knees, surely if there was a political will, surely if there would have been a significant interest, would not be spending two billion rand just on security only. And if I were the minister of, of police, I would have a different approach to this issue. But be that as it may, it sends a, a very unpleasant texture to you and I as ordinary citizens that this, there seems to be a lack of confidence in the SEPs in extent to which SEPs is being able to uh, arrest the decaying, arrest the plethora of web of criminals within ASCOM for any entity to redeem itself, for any ministry to, to redeem itself, it is important that we get to hear more and more positive messages that are coming through. You know, that is the only way in which we could, once again, as ordinary folks, have some kind of a positive message or some kind of a respect for the law and order. And surely we can't have ESCOM on its knees. We can't have stability, which ought to be done through the lives of SEPs are being brought into question because that's simply under my any efforts that the president is actually doing. Who wants to run to South Africa for investments when energy cannot be guaranteed? And I've picked up that uh, SARS is likely to lose substantial uh, revenue due to load shedding. How incredible is that? Anyway, I'm sure the power that be, uh, there are a lot of competent men and women who would address those kind of issues. I just want to quickly throw in my two cents worth observation and insights Moving further, I'm now joined by Professor Gregory Stotch, who is a qualified ophthalmologist, and we'll be talking all intricacies of his this this uh, profession. Without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity to welcome Gregory. Gregory, you welcome to Beyond Governance. Good morning, Namra. Thank you very much for having me this morning. The pleasure is mine, my good sir. You know, I'm sure you have lots of patients, you know, complaining about progressive uh, visual deterioration with ghosting and distortion of images. But before we get to that world, which you so diligently part of, who is Gregory Stolt? So, Nimrod, I'm a proudly South African Jew, 60 years old. I've been um, an ophthalmologist for almost 40 years. I qualified as a medical doctor at the University of Advertisement, as you mentioned, um, in 1985. 1990, I started a residency in ophthalmology and qualified in 1994. I worked as a part-time consultant at uh, Chris Hiney Barragonath Hospital, St. John's Hospital, which is actually affiliated to Chris Hiney. It's an eye hospital. I worked as a consultant, part-time consultant for six months as I started my private practice and then went into private practice full-time uh, six months later. I'm based at Linksfield Park Clinic, a practice as well at the Glenwood Hospital on the East Rand, and I worked in private practice very happily and hopefully continue to do so for many years to come. I see, Absolutely. I, I see a, a wide range of problems from, from, from basic conditions like myopia, which is in fact the most common refractive error in the world, affecting between 10 and 20% of the entire population of the world. That is generally a straightforward condition that is treated with spectacles or contact lenses. And then I see an array of, of, of pathology, cataracts being probably the most common condition in my practice. In fact, it's, it's very common worldwide. 
Um, and so that forms the basis of my practice. But again, see patients with trauma, see patients with medical conditions. Diabetes is, 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 is very important in terms of the eyes and the health, and the health of the eyes. I keep busy with pretty much a variety of, of conditions. See a lot of patients and, uh, keeps me busy. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that insight. That really gives us a good sense of the kind of issues that you're dealing with. You proceed. We are required to pay our bills. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. Uh, this is Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Bella and thanks for joining us as we having a very interesting conversation with Dr. Gregory Stodge, who is a qualified ophthalmologist. Before we took that quick ad, my good doctor here was giving us a bit of insight on the kind of a plethora of ailments and patients that he sees, which would obviously give us a basis for engaging further. Before we get to some of those issues that you raised, which, which, which I'm sure they're quite interesting, and I want to pursue, I want again, just get a sense as to, you know, typically people who venture into a specific field, they would ordinarily be influenced by their parents or influenced by somebody who they look up to. Who, in your view, prompted you uh, or influenced you to pursue medicine, as it were, or medically related field? So Nimrod, my, my late father was a doctor. He was a general practitioner and, of course, my role model. So from an early age, I knew that I was going to be a doctor. There was no doubt about that. So when I got to matric and, in, in fact, had completed matric, I applied to three medical schools because I wanted to be certain that I would be accepted at at least one. In fact, ultimately decided to accept my application was accepted at the University of Edwardsland which was the university my father attended, so it made sense, the continuity, and, and so I went into medicine. It was, um, I was not certain at that stage what I would end up doing. And in fact, my initial interview when I was applying for it, they asked which speciality I'd be interested in, and I actually mentioned surgery, general surgery. And that, in fact, was my interest um, until I made the decision to look beyond that and uh, and then decided that ophthalmology was the profession I wanted to go into. Entails a lot of surgery, but also consultations, treating medical conditions. So it's a good balance. We see patients with many, many different types of medical problems that have eye-related either signs or, or, or complications. And so it, it's a very balanced type of practice. It, it's a bit of everything. And uh, find it very rewarding. Um, I get to to improve patients' vision, specifically with, with cataract surgery. So th- that is my focus. So I also wanted to speak a little bit more about that because it's in fact been revolutionary in the way it developed. We were trained to do a very basic type of cataract operation or when, when I was a resident or registrar. 
we, we trained at St. John's Hospital where the patient volumes are extremely high. We could see clinics of 400 plus patients a day between five or six doctors literally having to sort out the serious from the, the non-serious problems. And of course, many of the patients there had cataracts. The surgery was not the most elegant. It was a big incision, slightly bigger than a centimeter. The cataract was removed. We implanted a lens in the eye and we had to suture the wounds, sometimes up to seven sutures. It caused a lot of astigmatism, which is an alteration in the shape of the cornea, which affects vision. And so patients often didn't have very good vision after the surgeries. Sutures had to remain in the eye for at least six weeks. Then we removed them and then sent the patients to be tested for spectacles. In the mid-90s, an American ophthalmologist, in fact, a Jewish ophthalmologist from New York, Charles Kalman, developed a process for removing cataract surgery through a small incision. The name of this procedure is called phacoemulsification, which means to break up the lens of the eye. And he devised a, an ultrasound probe in order to do this. And that changed ophthalmology 360 degrees. We were then able to do the same surgery through an incision smaller than three millimeters with no astigmatism or no change in the corneal astigmatism. Patients could obtain 2020 or 66 vision almost immediately after the surgery. Second eyes were done a week later and patients were then able to see very often at least distance vision without glasses and a pair of reading glasses for near. We were part of the revolution because we learned the methods as, as we completed our training. And so we caught that wave. And, and for me, that, that, that is the most exciting of, of ophthalmology. That's quite interesting indeed to see how the technology evolved, uh, uh, you know, over time. At some point you said you guys were seeing close to what, 500 patients almost a day and the, the technology that was used, uh, before then, uh, in your work, it was not so elegant. And I would imagine, uh, having gone as a patient being administered uh, with a technology that is not so elegant and I'm sure painful and just looking at it and, and where we are now, it's quite amazing to see that based on your own observation, you know, the new technology have sort of evolved to a point where there aren't major issues uh, due to investment in, and I'm sure, I'm sure the American uh, ophthalmologist that you made referring to is getting sufficient accolades by revolutionizing the whole eye testing environment. So in fact, the amazing thing is that um, he has passed away. He passed away in 2004, which is almost 20 years ago, and his method has remained unchanged. So despite the change in technology, and we've seen a huge change in the last 10 years, the method Absolutely. is done almost identically, and it's universal throughout the world. So a patient that has a cataract operation, the other side of the world will have almost the identical procedure being done. The other big advantage of, of small incision surgery is that the lens that we use is now able to, to fold. So we inject a lens which is twice the size of the incision through the same wound. The wound being so small requires no suture. So in, in fact, the patient's eye is, uh, and the, the surgery is complete by the end of the operation with no further treatment necessary. Of course, we use eye drops antibiotic and cortisone eye drops to treat any inflammation caused by the surgery. 
to prevent infection postoperatively. But apart from that, and regular or initially a few checkups, and then later on, possibly annual or, or checkups every two years, the patient requires no further treatment. And that, that, that for me is, is, is the most exciting, exciting part. You know, it's very interesting to hear, um, you know, but just listen to you, you're quite passionate about what you do. Take us through, you know, you said cataract is probably one of the most um, common ailment. What's your diagnosis as to what causes it and does it affect a specific cohort of age groups? Take us through those kind of dynamics. So the various causes of cataract, the most common being um, senile cataract or age-related cataract. Um, the theory is that UV rays from the sun cause changes in, in the human lens, which when we're born is a perfectly clear structure, and the lens starts to, to deteriorate. Um, the clarity of the lens deteriorates, and that's called the cataract. The other big groups that, that get cataracts are diabetics. They are way more likely uh, to develop cataracts at a younger age, possibly related to the change in glucose concentration in, in the blood. Probably half of the patients that undergo cataract surgery, certainly in my practice, are diabetic. A very small number of patients that we see are, are congenital cataracts. So in utero, an infection that, that affects the fetus can, can cause a cataract. And every now and then we see babies born with, with cataracts in both eyes, requiring surgery even at a very, very young age. Um, that is unusual, so it, it, it's, it's something that we see really uh, only every now and then. Trauma is another big group. Um, injuries to the eye, specifically penetrating injuries, very often involve the lens. And so part of the treatment Obviously, suturing any laceration of the eye often involves uh, removing the cataract as well. And the outcomes are, are often much worse in trauma because other structures in the eye are often damaged. Um, any, any injury that affects what we call the posterior um, aspect of the, of the eye, uh, the retina and the vitreous or the jelly of the eye, has a much poorer prognosis. But generally, the cataracts that we see are age-related, they can develop at any stage from the late 40s, and uh, so so we see the majority of patients uh, in are slightly older patients that have cataracts. Interesting, interesting indeed, Gregory. You know, before we we get into further insight on some of the interesting. Uh, insight that you've shared with us as to what causes cataract and extent to which uh, you address it. Let's pay our bills. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. Uh, this is uh, Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. Nimrod Nimele here. I am joined by Gregory Storch, Dr. Gregory Storch, who is a qualified ophthalmologist. Before we took that break, we were talking about 
types of cataracts which he sees and the kinds of underlying conditions which result um, to cataract. Uh, in the main, he pointed out to us that the diabetes is pretty much one of the common ailments that, that result in cataracts as well. They also treat, you know, babies. They, they treat pretty much a different range of age group, also including uh, trauma injuries uh, to the eye and so on and so forth. So it's quite a very delicate and interesting interesting side of, of, of medicine, which he's been sharing with us. As we proceed, I suppose when I come through to your establishment, being over 40 and being diagnosed with diabetic, the chances are, because how, how you address it, you, you know, the loss of my vision is as, as a result of underlying condition, i.e. diabetic, uh, which means for me to, I don't have to restore my sight. Do I need to complement my diet? Do I any over and above having to do, having to check for a cataract and, and going through surgery? What are the other accompanying remedial actions that a person that comes through to your, your establishment and have to go through? So now just, just to put it into context, I do see a lot of diabetic patients, and it's a very important examination, and I'll, I'll just explain that a little bit more. The majority of diabetic patients do not get complications and, in fact, often get cataracts at a later age, uh, much the same as the general population. But the examination is very important for a few reasons. Diabetes affects the small blood vessels in the body. The eye is a very unique organ. That is, it's the only organ in which we can directly visualize the blood vessels of the body. So we examine the retina, which is the structure that is lines the back of the eye. It's the most important part of the eye because damage to the retina results in profound loss of vision very often. And uh, so part of the the Assessment of a diabetic is to, to examine the retina, in fact, more so than, than the lens of the eye, and that cataracts actually are, are of secondary importance. So we look for a condition called diabetic retinopathy, and these are changes in the retina which affect vision. And the most common is leakage of blood vessels within the retina, specifically within the macula. Now, the macula is the most sensitive part of the retina in that it represents the central vision. So any condition that affects the macula will affect vision, and the more severe the condition, the worse the vision. Part of our technology is an instrument that we have available to us. It's expensive and has become a necessity in, in every ophthalmological practice. It's called OCT. OCT is, is a laser-guided imaging of the retina. It gives us an image that is almost equivalent to examining the retina under a microscope. It, it gives us absolute detail within the retina, within the macula. And if there are signs of leakage and if the leakage is significant, we need to treat it. Together with OCT, we have a procedure that, that is offered to patients and, and many patients nowadays will have heard of someone undergoing an injection of the eye or in the eye. It sounds dramatic, it sounds horrendous. It's actually um, neither of those. It's done in theater. It's a very quick and painless procedure. We inject medication in the eye. The most common form of that medication is a drug called Avastin, which is a very potent anti-inflammatory drug. That injection treats the fluid leakage, which um, is on the basis of inflammation within the retina. And the improvement in vision is, is significant. 
it's being done all over the world, millions and millions of avastin injections offered predominantly to diabetic patients, but also used for a condition called age-related macular degeneration, which is a totally different condition, also affects the macula, but it's also thought to be on the basis of inflammation affecting the, the, the blood vessels of the retina, causing swelling of the eye, a swelling of the retina. So for us, looking at the retina becomes the most important thing. Having said that, the majority of diabetics that I see, and to put it into context, do not have diabetic retinopathy, or they have very mild diabetic retinopathy, which requires observation only. So the injections are offered to maybe 10% of diabetics. is often repeated. The condition tends to fluctuate, so it improves and then deteriorates. So an ongoing examination of diabetics is highly recommended. All diabetics should be examined at least once a year by an ophthalmologist, and patients with complicated diabetes obviously more more frequently than that. Interesting insights, Gregory. Uh, uh, certainly hope uh, the listener out there is really gathering uh, uh, important uh, insights and know-how uh, in some of these very complex uh, Narrative that you are putting to us, but it, it does come across as as uh, that you know people need to or patients need to from time to time uh, approach establishments such as yours um, to for for them to be examined. I mean, what is key based on what you have pointed out to us? I mean, it, it, you pointed out that the most common, um, I suppose, a challenge is the leakage of blood in in, in the retina, and which require some kind of, of, of surgery, which is being administered through uh, what you refer to as OCT laser. And uh, the procedure basically is, it's pretty much um, not as bad as horrendous as, as one would imagine. And it's therefore important that uh, people take heed of these kinds of insights and before they obviously get the kind of support that they need. Dig a little bit deeper on the examination front. Most people obviously don't know what they don't know. What would be the advice that you provide to, you know, and I suppose not everyone knows that they either have a mild or a severe diabetic until it's too late. Take us through that and what are some of the things that people need to be aware of or at least be concerned about as one of the, I suppose, side effects of, of diabetes would be a loss of vision. Until I'm asking this question, most people who have suffered from COVID have subsequently lost their visions drastically. And I've, I've seen it. I've changed my glasses way too often. What would you say those are some of the COVID as one of the issues um, in your experience? Has it been a major concern or any other major epidemic resulting in the loss of, of sight uh, for people? So it, we looked at, at COVID and the retina in detail. They, they did studies early on. And we expected to see a, a direct correlation between the two. COVID carried an inflammatory um, aspect to it, and we were certain we were going to see inflammation affecting affecting the eye and, and the blood vessels of the eye. And in fact, we didn't. And the one theory is that the eye was was isolated in some way, and it, it wasn't affected in the same way as, as some of the other organs in the body. But we did see patient problems of vision, probably the the best correlation that we saw were patients that were treated with steroids, with cortisone, for their for their COVID complications. And uh, cortisone does have an effect on vision. So 
in the short term, it, it causes blurred vision. It doesn't really cause any permanent change in vision. But it is also a cause of cataract. And patients that are on chronic cortisone treatments, um, asthmatics, for example, uh, are also more likely to develop cataract. So cortisone is important, and that could be the link. Um, and I guess it could also be anecdotal in that any change in vision in someone who had COVID may presume that it was the COVID causing it. But in fact, nothing was really directly documented. And it was uh, actually a, a huge relief because we thought we'd be seeing completely different type of eye disease. And, and that never that never happened. Um, in terms of, of diabetics being preferred and and examined by ophthalmologists, very often diabetics are on, on programs, and the program would include an annual ophthalmic checkup uh, together with various other medical practitioners. So we do see patients on those programs, and they are referred, and we generally see them once a year. Diabetics do slip through the net, and, of course, it's important because a lot of the early changes that we see are asymptomatic, have no symptoms. So a patient wouldn't know that they had a problem necessarily. And if the condition deteriorated and they then noticed the change in vision, very often it is more severe. And so the treatment in some cases is, is, is less effective. So we, I would urge every diabetic on diagnosis to see an ophthalmologist and they would uh, arrange follow-ups ideally on an annual basis. Having said that, most diabetics do not develop problems, but of course there's no way of telling that. And an examination, revealing a normal retinal examination and a normal eye examination is is reassuring um, certainly to, to anyone and specifically to diabetics. Interesting insight indeed. We're going to just take a break and we'll come back in a second as we gravitate into the last leg of this uh, interesting conversation I'm having with uh, Dr. Stock. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. Uh, this is Beyond Governance. I'm joined by Dr. Gregory Stock, uh, who is a qualified ophthalmologist, uh, giving us a detailed insight. Uh, almost uh, feels like I'm at a medical school for those uh, <laughs> <laughs> kinds of, of jargons that it is thrown. I mean, I just can't keep up. <laughs> that's, maybe that's why I'm on a medical doctor. <laughs> yeah. But be that as it may, it's quite fascinating, uh, Gregory, the kind of prognosis and diagnosis that you, you dispense with. And I suppose with the ever-evolving technology, it has made some of these, uh, I suppose, aspects of your work relatively easier, but not necessarily uh, accessible. Because at some point you pointed out that, you know, the OCT laser is quite an expensive instrument. Take us through high level, you know, accessibility dimension of proper medical support or proper diagnosis on issues such as cataracts. So, Namrat, you 
Absolutely correct. The technology does come at a huge cost, and uh, we're fortunate that we are able to to offer these in in private practice in in South Africa. Government hospitals do have these instruments available to them as well. I'm not certain how the funding is channeled, but they do get access to them, which is uh, which makes me very happy because. Obviously, the disparities, huge disparities between government hospitals and private hospitals in this country, diabetic patients that attend Chris Harney, St. John's Hospital are, are going to be screened and they're going to be seen ophthalmologists and, and residents or registrars train, training to become ophthalmologists. So even though the volumes of patients seen there are, are huge, patients are still properly screened and the problems are picked up. Getting patients to the hospital is always the issue. So in our days where we trained at St. John's, you see, see patients coming from Soweto, which is literally bordering on, on, on Barabonath Hospital, with dense, dense cataract. So literally blind from their cataract. We would offer surgery at that, at that stage. So th- those are the things that, that need to be addressed and uh, they're huge things. So it's education, getting patients to know that there is help even a few kilometers away. They don't sit with a problem, just accepting that they become blind as a result of, of aging and when they have a completely treatable condition that uh, that, that is really 100% treatable. Absolutely. One of the issues that perhaps maybe a listener out there would be intrigued by is just the old point of a difference between ophthalmologist and optometrist. Is there a fundamental difference or it is just a continuation of What's the word I'm looking for? A continuum of support for so a layman. For a layman, what's so, the difference? So there is a fundamental difference. Uh, an ophthalmologist is is a medical doctor that has specialised in ophthalmology. So much the same as someone does orthopedics or, or any of the other specialities. It's a four year residency after the degree in order to become an ophthalmologist. So all ophthalmologists are medical doctors. Are trained to treat medical conditions to understand medical conditions. For example, hypertension or diabetes and the application to the eye. Optometrists are trained really to do um, testing of the eye, to, to do refractions, which is to determine the, the strength or the power of the eye, and to prescribe in most cases, if it is going to improve vision, a pair of spectacles or contact lenses. They are trained to assess and to diagnose the basic ocular conditions, and they do refer those to ophthalmologists. So the, the two professions do work hand in hand, but the training is, is obviously a much shorter um, course. Optometry, uh, as far as I know, is four or five years. It can be done as a diploma or degree, depending on which university offers it, and uh, there's no real training beyond that. Optometrists can do additional training uh, if they choose. They don't need to do it in order to, to function as optometrists. I just want to mention one condition, and optometrists are are very important in screening for this condition. We see a condition called glaucoma, which is, in fact, very common. It's a group, actually a group of conditions, and in most cases caused by an increase in the pressure of the eye. So the eyeball has fluid, and we are able to measure the pressure using specific instruments called tonometers. And if a patient has a raised intraocular pressure, an optometrist will refer the patient to an ophthalmologist to, to assess them further. The importance of glaucoma is that it's a silent disease and it will or can result in blindness if, if not treated and not controlled. So 
optometrists are more likely to see a patient coming in for a, for a checkup, just, just checking their glasses or seeing if they, if they need to get glasses, and, and we'll pick that up at their examination. So there are changes that affect the nerve of the eye, the optic nerve. They look at the optic nerve, they examine the optic nerve, they see changes or they, they're uncertain if, if the patient may or may not have glaucoma, we'll refer the patient for, for further investigation. It's a common condition. We see a lot of patients with glaucoma. Uh, the, the cause of it is multifactorial. There is sometimes a family history, very often not. And it is something that needs to be picked up before a patient is aware of symptoms. Symptomatic loss of vision due to glaucoma is irreversible, so you cannot improve vision. And in fact, uh, the, the treatment is aimed at controlling the condition, uh, but, but it doesn't improve the condition. So we rely heavily on optometrists. They refer patients to us. They, re- they, they diagnose cataracts in patients that, that have blurred vision that they presume may be due to needing new spectacles. Um, so the two professions work hand in hand. We don't prescribe spectacles. Um, ophthalmologists uh, would refer patients back to optometrists to do spectacles. So that, as I say, the two professions work hand in hand. Absolutely. Uh, for those that are pursuing optometrists, uh, it's that you've got it from the ophthalmologist that you, you, you know, they are playing a very important uh, role in supporting ophthalmologists. And thank you very much for, uh, giving us a breakdown, you know, in terms of the fundamental difference. One obviously is trained as a medical uh, profession. The other one obviously, uh, uh, more specialized, but not necessarily, uh, medical, uh, in, 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 in a sense. Um, one, Critical issue, um, that person maybe you may just, um, dispense with, um, in your profession. What would you say have been your highlight? So Nimrod, even as recent as two weeks ago, I saw a patient who has Down syndrome. Now Down syndrome is a chromosome abnormality that affects the fetus and the child that is born has very limited mental capacity and so I saw a patient as an adult who was brought into my room and he'd been hitting his eye out of frustration because he couldn't see. And I examined him and he had cataracts in both eyes. He is an older patient. He was in his mid-teens for several years, had not been able to see and just out of pure frustration kept hitting himself in the eye. We did a cataract operation on him and as I removed the patch, the smile that I got, well, it, it, it can't describe the sensation. It, it was just the most amazing feeling. He has subsequently stopped doing that. He doesn't hit his eye. His, his whole personality has changed. And for me, that type of reward is uh, what makes ophthalmology worthwhile for me. The sense uh, of helping someone and uh, very humbling and, 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 and just, just, the job satisfaction is, is, is unbelievable. Uh, thank you very much for sharing those beautiful anecdotes of, of some of your key highlights um, uh, in a career that's been, what, over 20 years? Uh, now i close in 40 years, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> 40 years, going 50. Gregory, thank you very much. It has been absolutely beautiful having you uh, gracing the Beyond Government's uh, show. I uh, certainly... No, I definitely know that the listener 
grasp a number of insights from your end and they would be rushing to establishing such as yours to f- take some examination. But perhaps maybe quickly, if I can give you a, a minute or two just to give us where are you located? Should anybody be interested in seeing you? Just take us through your, your physical location, contact details that you want to dispense with for a listener who might be interested in your services? Thank you so much. I'm, I'm based at Clinsfield Park Clinic in Johannesburg, the Glenwood um, Hospital in Benoni. Um, my contact numbers are 011-485-4224. Um, I have an email address, drstach, drstach at idoc, E-Y-E-D-O-C, .co.za. I welcome any questions, any concerns, any inquiries, um, and if I can help anyone in any way, to me that would uh, 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 that would be my pleasure. To be my pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, there you are. That was um, Dr. Gregory Stock, who is a qualified ophthalmologist, giving us um, insights on the kind of intricate world that he's involved in. Uh, we're going to have to leave it here. We have run out of time. Thank you very much, Gregory. It has been an absolute pleasure having you. All right. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for, for inviting me. I, uh, I, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. That was uh, Gregory Stock. Um, if they've got any other follow-up questions, please uh, uh, go through our SMS line, which is 34519. I will take your issues or concerns, and I'll pass them on to Gregory uh, for, for any help that uh, you might need. And we're going to have to leave it here. It has been absolutely beautiful. And I certainly hope that you have enjoyed the conversation I've had with Gregory. Personally, I have evolved as I evolve every day for I have an open mind uh, to insights uh, and anecdotes from professionals such as Gregory who sharing their expertise with us. Shalom. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.